Morning, guys. Um, my name is Alex O'Brien. I'm head of business origination here at APTN. Uh, I'm just going to give a really quick and brief overview on GATS, the Cape Town Convention, and AWG. So GATS is, as it says, a global aircraft trading system that's been developed by AWG um, Aviation Working Group. So essentially, it's a non-for-profit entity, which is comprised of different sections of the avi uh, aviation industry, manufacturers, lessors, and financial institutions. So they're all collaborating to try to develop policies, laws, and regulations to facilitate the advancement of international aviation financing and leasing. So basically, it's been introduced due to the dramatic increase in the volume of aircraft trading that we've seen in the last five or 10 years. If you need any more information on GATS, you can go on to awg.aero, which is the Aviation Working Group's website. So the Cape Town Convention. Um, so it was signed in Cape Town in 16th of December 2001, but it's only been effective since the 1st of March in 2006. So at the moment, since the 12th of February, there's 77 contracting states. So the US, Ireland, UK and Russia, as well as China are among contracting states. Um, it's also worth noting that Germany and France are actually non-contracting states. Obviously, Ireland, due to its huge aviation hub, plays a key role. So the object ob uh, objective of the Cape Town Conve Convention is to establish a commercially orientated un uniform set of international rules relating to the creation, registration, priority, and enforcement of security and leasing interests in aircraft objects. So just two benefits of the Cape Town Convention is legal predictability on cross-border transactions and lower funding costs and greater access to finance. So this is just a world map um, of the Cape Town Convention Compliance Index. Um, as you can see, um, the countries that are included all have a score um, going from very high to low. This score is um, made on a formula that's made up of five or six different um, compliance indexes uh, with Canada having the highest score. And just this chart also just um, showcases the, Cape the, the ratified countries and the growth that's been seen since 2006 where there was only 11 countries and now it's gone all the way up to 77, as mentioned earlier. So just as always, I'm just leaving my contact details here. Um, if you have any questions about my slides or any questions in regards to the APTM platform um, or any of the WhatsApp groups or the Instagram. So I'll stop sharing my slides here and yeah. pass on to the Madison guys who are gonna give a, a much more higher level um, introduction. Guys, are you okay, Rory uh, and um, Stuart, to come on Perfect, board? perfect, great. Thanks, thanks, Alan. Thanks, uh, Alex. So I'll try and share our slides here. So let me know if you're seeing those. Yeah, that looks good. Um, Excellent. Great. So, uh, for those that don't know me, I'm a partner in Matson's Aviation Finance and Transportation Group, and I, along with my fellow partner, Stuart Kennedy, are just going to give you a very high-level overview of GATS and some of the updates in and around GATS um, over, over the last couple of months. Um, GATS is probably what I describe as a fairly novel, it's a, um, it's a highly efficient platform used for the trading of aircraft interests. But before kind of jumping into GATS, it's important to recognize that what GATS does is that it, it largely leverages off and kind of standardizes the documentation around and probably if, in, um, improves the efficiencies of what's an existing form of holding um, and transferring interest in aircraft and engines. And that's through the use of trust structures. So to, to understand GATS and the benefits that GATS provides, I think it's, it's helpful and probably important to understand a little bit of, as to how trust structures work and operate. So trust structures themselves um, uh, kind of would date back to the end of the 11th century when kind of English knights headed off in the Crusades and entrusted their land and property to their family and friends to hold on their behalf until they came back. And they've kind of been developed over time and they've becoming increasingly common or the use of trust is becoming increasingly common in aviation transactions. So a... Um, a trust in, in itself is a, is a creature of contract and equity. And in, es in essence, what it involves is 
a trustee and in the aviation sector that's generally provided by uh, the independent corporate service providers. So in the Irish market over the last number of years there's only really been one corporate service provider that's been doing that which is Wilmington Trust but through the introduction of the GATS platform there's a number of new corporate service providers who are now also providing the owner trustee services of kind of inter-trust, TMF and others. Um, so what, what the trustee structure involves is the corporate service provider effectively holding legal title to an aircraft on trust for the beneficial owner. So what that effectively means is that the trustee is the owner of the aircraft on paper, whereas the beneficial owner is the real economic owner of the aircraft. Now, the, uh, the creation of the trust is very, very straightforward. Effectively, a short form declaration of trust document is entered into between the trustee or the corporate service provider together with the economic owner of the aircraft. And effectively what the trust document does is the corporate service provider signs a document whereby it effectively says that I, the corporate service provider, holds this aircraft on trust for you, the economic owner. And the trust document will provide that any revenue that's generated from the aircraft asset, lease revenue or whatnot, is effectively the property of the economic owner, that the trustee will only act at the direction of the real economic owner, and the economic owner has, or the beneficial owner, has the real right to replace the trustee at any given time. So really it's, it's just that on paper, the trustee company is the owner of record of the aircraft, but not the real economic owner. And the trust, principally to the extent uh, possible, is, is considered uh, transparent from a tax perspective. So the beneficial owner will still get the capital allowances for the depreciation of the aircraft. Um, withholding tax analysis will generally still be conducted between the airline and the economic owner. And the economic owner will be taxed on the, the basis of the corporate income that's kind of generated by the aircraft asset. Um, so when considering how the trust structure is utilized in aircraft uh, transactions, so generally speaking, the way it's, it's put into a structure is that uh, let's take, for example, an aircraft leasing company want to buy an aircraft. So hypothetically, let's just say aircraft want to buy an aircraft. They enter into a sale and purchase agreement to buy that aircraft. And they pay the purchase price for the aircraft to the seller. And effectively, under the terms of the purchase agreement, they nominate or ask the seller to transfer title by way of the bill of sale of the aircraft to the corporate service provider, let's, let's say for, for the purposes of our example, it's, it's Wilmington. And Wilmington at that point in time enter into this declaration of trust document with Aircap to say that they hold the aircraft on trust for Aircap. So at this point in time, Aircap's bought the aircraft, it's paid for the aircraft, but the owner of the aircraft on paper is Wilmington. So Wilmington is the entity therefore that enters into the lease agreement with the relevant airline. And similarly, to the extent that Aircap are going off to try and get financing to fund the purchase of the aircraft, the bank is going to want to take an interest or a mortgage over Wilmington's legal title in the aircraft. And similarly, they're going to want to take an interest uh, by way of a security assignment or assignment of the rights of aircraft or of Aircap's interest in that trust document. So there's two pieces of security that's taken as opposed to what would standardly be just the one um, aircraft mortgage. Um, so, so now what you, what, what you broadly have is the aircraft on paper um, owned by Wilmington leased to the relevant airline. So what are the benefits of utilizing a structure? Well, where, where it really kicks in and the benefits of it accrue is when Aircap want to effectively then sell their interest in that aircraft. And ordinarily, Ordinarily speaking, if the aircraft was purely owned by Aircap on a lease to the airline, they'd have to engage with the airline initially. And when they ultimately go to sell the aircraft, there's a whole lot of novation documents and interaction both with the, the registry uh, where the aircraft is registered and equal, equally with the airline, which can take a lot of time. It can add a lot of cost. Uh, there's a lot of administration, a lot of documentation. With the trust structure, what happens is that Aircap is merely selling its interest in the trust. So the lease is untouched, ideally to the extent that, and in circumstances where the trust structure is going to operate and work properly uh, and more efficiently, it would mean that it would work in jurisdictions where the aircraft is either registered in the name of the airline or alternatively registered in the name of the legal owner, i.e. the trustee. 
such that Aircap enters into the sale and purchase agreement with its, its new purchaser, and it effectively sells its interest in the trust. The lease stays untouched, um, broadly speaking. The aircraft remains registered either in the name of the trustee or the airline, and it's a far easier process for the purposes of trading aircraft. And that structure is already in place now. Now, there are certain circumstances in which the trust structures don't work because in, in certain jurisdictions where you're ultimately going to be looking to lease your aircraft, they don't recognize trust structures, or alternatively, there's certain jurisdictions in which the aircraft will need to be registered in the name of the beneficial or the economic owner rather than the trustee or the airline, and that can negate a lot of the benefits that accrue through using the, the trust structures. And simply put, some lenders prefer to know that purely from an enforcement perspective, they're lending to an SPV so they can enforce their security through the mortgage in terms of repossessing the aircraft, or alternatively, they can repossess by way of a share mortgage or taking, taking effectively the owner of the aircraft, that box, and effectively just selling the company with, with everything attached. And that might be kind of a cleaner method of enforcement. So the trust structures don't always work, but they already are in place and provide huge benefits and efficiencies in the trading of aircraft. Um, so at this point, I'm going to hand you over to Stuart, who's going to talk through how GATS now leverages off these trust structures. Thanks, Rory. Um, so, uh, hello, everyone. Um, just to introduce myself, my name is Stuart Kennedy. I'm also a partner in the Aviation Finance and Transportation Group. Um, so, GATS, uh, you know, commenced really with, with the fact from the 1st of June. There's been a lot of talk about it for a number of years um, because the, the main drawback, I guess, in terms of trading aircraft, certainly from a legal perspective, um, was the amount of time that it actually took to effectively sell and novate a lease across from the airline. Um, there's quite a lot of delay time effectively between when you strike the sale agreement and when you can actually affect um, the transfer of title and novate the lease across. Um, so that was quite problematic, um, particularly from a lessor's point of view. Um, because the trading of aircraft is obviously an essential part of their business. And you know, it was taking quite a lot of time, quite a lot of money. Um, and, you know, deals were just not converting as quickly as they'd liked. So the concept of using GATS, the global aircraft trading system, was to put aircraft into trusts. And, and Rory's given a good background there in terms of what trusts are and how they operate and how they're established. Um, they've been around for a long time. So just because GATS is, is, is something new doesn't mean that trusts are new. We, like I've been working with trusts for nearly 10, 11 years in an aircraft context. Um, it's just the GAT system itself has accelerated, I guess, the focus that is on trusts and um, the use of them by lessors, um, more and more of which are actually um, putting new aircraft into trust for this very purpose. But when you pair it all back, it's actually a very straightforward process. So the main purpose of GATS is really just to facilitate the trading and financing of aircraft to reduce the burdens on lessees, lessors and financiers. And by that, what I mean is when you sell an aircraft in a traditional structure, if you just go back to the previous slide there, Rory. Sorry. Uh, Mike, sorry. Yeah. So if, when you, when you um, sell an aircraft in a, in, in, in a typical structure, what you have to do is you have to negotiate with the lessee to transfer the aircraft. And you do that by way of a lease novation. Um, that can take a good couple of months to actually agree the form of novation to transfer over uh, to the new lessor um, and it can cost quite a lot of money um, the lessees do have a fee for that because there's quite an involved process that's involved there and they're disrupted and you know I, I'm, I've been at a number of the presentations for GATS um, where a number of the lessors said look we have 10 aircraft on lease to a particular um, uh, airline and we seem to be coming to them every two or three months requesting that we sell our aircraft and it's bothering them it's creating a bit of an issue in terms of our relationship because it's disrupting their business they're an airline they're not a trading entity and um, so GATS is designed to just trade the beneficial interest and um, without disrupting too much the airline that that's effectively operating the aircraft now there will be a little bit of disruption because obviously um, insurances need to be updated and all of that type of stuff but it's a much smoother process and it's designed to promote trading and financing in an efficient, secure and predictable manner where everybody's working off standard form documents. You know what you're getting in terms of the assignment. You know what type of a security agreement you're signing up to because it's all in a prescribed form on the GATS website. So this will increase transparency um, by, by creating a live and searchable uh, electronic ledger describing and, and illustrating all forms of trust that are in place that are effectively in the GATS system. 
Um, so if we move on to the next slide, um, as I say, every document will be in a standardized form. Um, and that's done on purpose because, you know, as a lawyer, I come across novations every day of the week. Um, but every lawyer has their own form. Every lessor has their own form. And, you know, an airline could get five, six, seven, eight different forms from different lessors if they're trading aircraft. And that creates different legal issues. And it creates, um, I suppose, an element of complexity for them um, and a certain amount of protracted negotiation. So by having a standardized form in terms of transferring the interest or securing the interest, um, everybody knows where they stand. Everybody knows the terms and provisions that apply. So it cuts down, um, you know, to the detriment of the lawyers, it cuts down uh, all of the negotiation, I guess, and, you know, a lot of the, the hard and sticky points because they've already been predetermined and everybody has agreed that's participating in the system that they will operate in a certain way. So the e-ledger is updated following each trust creation, transfer and security interest grant so that you can actually search and see which party is where for each element of the transaction. Now, the, the GATT system itself, it's brand new. It, it, I mean, we've been talking about it for a long time, but it commenced on the 1st of June. We're registered as a professional trustee and a number of my clients um, have established themselves as well. We have not seen it yet in practice. We know what the documents look like. We know how they're to operate. We know how the system works. We, we've been to all of the seminars. and um, I've even commented on the standardized forms before they came to, to pass, but it is brand new. It, it is effectively uncharted territory. So how it will evolve over time still remains to be seen. And I think it'll take a little bit of time. And if we move on to the next um, slide, um, the, the, just, just I suppose to, to give a little bit of background on how you actually effectively transfer. Um, the beneficial interest you see there is transferred to another party subject to the conditions to transfer set out the lease. So the lessee isn't losing out on anything here. So the ordinary conditions that would be set out in a lease agreement um, when it's delivered to an airline um, will still hold true. So the, the lessee is not being disadvantaged here because um, the beneficial interest itself cannot be traded unless those conditions are satisfied. And effectively, the lessee has to log on and click and accept that all of the conditions that they were prescribed in the lease in terms of net worth, um, et cetera, et cetera, KYC, all of those good things have been, insurances, et cetera, have been complied with. Um, so it will only be done subject to the conditions as transfer is set out in the lease. So the lessee is not being prejudiced by this. Um, the standardized forms are executed electronically, which is now a move towards electronic execution, um, transferring beneficiary, new beneficiary owner trustees, so that the party, so the old owner and the new party, and then the trustee who's holding the asset um, for the benefit of everybody else, they're all signed electronically um, and it's all been done, it's going to be done electronically. I've not yet seen, even though it's commenced on the 1st of June, I've not yet seen um, anybody do it yet, but it is live. And we act for a number of lessors, many of which um, are currently operating with trusts, um, but they have not yet used GATS. So I have not actually seen that in practice yet, but the idea is that everything will be electronically signed. Given the, um, I suppose, just generally, and, and, and the discussion around electronic contracts is outside the, the, the remit of this discussion today, but generally with um, the COVID-19 lockdowns and everything like that, um, there has been a move towards the electronic signing of certain documents. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, certain simple contracts and, and legal opinions that we've issued. And um, so, you know, we're moving in that, that direction anyway. Um, the beneficial interest security assignment, as I say, so, the, the important thing to remember is when something is in a trust, the actual ownership is split. So you have your legal interest and then you have your beneficial interest. So there's two interests that are there. So in addition to taking a mortgage over the aircraft, you cannot forget that the beneficial interest also needs to be secured because it's split between two different parties. So in addition to the standardized mortgage, a beneficial interest security assignment also needs to be taken to ensure legal and beneficial interest is secured in favor of, of a particular party. Um, and, and, and the security signed obviously as well in respect to the underlying lease, all of which are in a standardized form under the GATT system. So again, you're not dealing with um, multiple forms of these documents that would be produced by different lawyers. So everybody should be quite familiar with the, the terms and provisions, thereby cutting down the negotiation effectively. If we move on to the, to the next slide. So GATT itself, it's a global system accessible worldwide. Um, Initially, there are certain jurisdictions that have been prescribed, and it won't come as a massive surprise to those with experience in aviation that they are Ireland, Singapore, or the US. Um, Ireland, obviously, I mean, we don't need to say why Ireland is, is prevalent. It, it is the center in terms of aircraft leasing. Um, the US, obviously, just in terms of volume, and then Singapore for, for the Asian market. 
Um, now, I have not ever seen a Singapore law governed trust, but it was established by the AWG for the purposes of those in the Asian market um, if they, they were chosen, if they were selected to be used. Um, but over the last, <clears throat> excuse me, 10, 11 years, I have only ever seen, as far as trusts are concerned with aircraft, um, an Irish law trust um, or, you know, the usual Delaware um, or Utah uh, statutory and grantor trusts. I have never seen anything other than those two, but Singapore is prescribed as a form that can be used. Um, as the system expands and develops globally and worldwide, if other jurisdictions are to come into play, that list may be expanded by the AWG. But for now, I think what you'll find if you see them or if you come across them anywhere is most likely either an Irish law or a US law governed trust, not Singapore, but, but you know it is there and it, it may crop up. So accessible worldwide, but only certain jurisdictions selected. Now, the important distinction, and, and you'll have heard about GATS and Cape Town, is that there is absolutely no legal relationship between GATS and Cape Town whatsoever. You don't need one to have the other. Um, GATS doesn't deal with direct interest in aircraft and engines. It's based only on beneficial interest in trusts, whereas Cape Town is with respect to legal interests. So GATS is beneficial interests. Cape Town is legal interests. Um, so there is no interaction between them um, whatsoever. They're completely separate and independent concepts. So the creation of, a, of an international interest for Cape Town and the protection of rights under Cape Town will not be dependent on whether GATS is applicable or not. It'll be dependent on whether the requirements of the convention, as it has always been the case, is applicable or not. So just an important thing to keep in mind that GATS and Cape Town um, you know, they're, they're not the same thing and they're not to be used interchangeably and you don't need one to have the other. They are completely separate. Um, move it on there, Rory. So just, I suppose, to summarise with respect to GATS, the idea behind it and really the intention um, is to modernise aircraft equipment trading and financing. And again, as I say, it's to increase the speed at which that we can trade aircraft. And that's primar primarily driven by lessors who want to be able to trade aircraft, several of which may be on lease to the same airline or different airlines, without having to go through that, what is sometimes a very protracted negotiation process with um, airlines themselves around um, the novations. Um, it is to reduce the burden and time, as I say, for everybody, because obviously the, the speed at which you can actually innovate and transfer obviously makes it much easier for all parties involved, the lessor in terms of, get, of, of trading their aircraft, the lessees in terms of not being disrupted, and then the financiers in terms of just being able to roll the financing quickly. Um, it does reinforce the no increased obligation lease provision in favour of lessees. So again, just I want to reiterate the fact that the conditions of transfer under the existing lease agreement will stay. Those conditions will be there. So it's not as if lessors can actually bypass or circumvent the requirements of lessees. They can't. And if the lessees do not participate with this, it can't go ahead. So if the conditions to transfer the lease are not complied with, the lessee does not give its consent on GATS and therefore it does not proceed. So there is no bypassing of the lessee. Um, so as I say, it protects the rights. It's fully electronic. So there's no um, written contracts anymore in, term, in, in terms of wet ink. It's done electronically and it is a voluntary system open to all industry players. Um, it's not compulsory. It doesn't have to be used. I have a number of clients um, that use trusts and may or may not use GATS in the future. I think it's kind of almost like they're waiting to see what will happen. It, it became live on the 1st of June. Um, but I would say over the last 18 months, I have certainly seen um, an increase in the use of trusts by um, you know, a lot of lessors and some of which you know, you'd be quite surprised to, to, to see doing it. And by that, I mean some of the Chinese-based lessors that have operations in Ireland. Um, when I spoke to them about trust, you know, seven, eight years ago, and they, were, they didn't want to know about it because it didn't make any sense to them. And it wasn't a concept that they understood in their home jurisdiction. But they've started to use trust, but not the GATS form. And I think that's the first step in the process. So I think in terms of GATS itself, um, I think it will take some time to gather a little bit of momentum to start seeing the trading within the system itself. Um, but it will happen. Um, but I think it will be a little slow. Um, and certainly in the meantime, people are starting to use more and more trust. So it's certainly very relevant. Stuart, um, thank you very much. You, uh, you've you've uh, the slide up there with the contact details, which is brilliant. Um, th thanks for that overview. Um, just a couple of quick questions from my side. Uh, yeah. Um, 
apart from Wilmington, who else is providing trust services? You know, either Singapore or Ireland or in the US. Are there many? Yeah, uh, it's it, it's a very yeah, it's a very good question. So, um, for basically, uh, in terms of tr owner trustee services, it has only ever been Wilmington um, that's provided those services. However, in the last couple of months, um, Intertrust are now providing them. Um, they, they, they bought the old Wells Fargo operation from, from the UK and they're now providing owner trustee services. Um, we're assisting a number of other service providers in Dublin. It hasn't been made public yet, but we're assisting a number of other service providers in Dublin who are applying for what's known as TCSP, so Trustee and Corporate Service Provider Authorization, to uh, effectively provide these types of trustee services. So um, by the end of the year, you will probably find that there will be three, four, if not five um, trustees in the Dublin market specifically providing owner trustee services in the aircraft sphere where it has only ever been Wilmington to date. Very good. And uh, just uh, from my own background in engines, do you see, do you see uh, gas being applied to engine transactions in the future as well, or will it be just aircraft? No, it'll be everything. So, I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, we, we have trusts that are just with respect to engines as well, so they can be separately traded in the usual way. So absolutely, engines can be included in that. And um, more often than not, they are paired with its aircraft and, and both engines, depending on what you're dealing with. But absolutely, engines are in trust as well, so therefore can be within the GAT system too. Good. Um, yeah, well, if there's no other questions at this point, um, I'd like to move on to the, the second speaker. Thanks again um, to Rory and Stuart for that. Uh, oh, yeah. Thanks for more questions at the end. If you want to do that, um, yeah, of course. You can put the uh, the questions on the chat forum on Zoom. Uh, if, you, if you see the pop up there, you, you can put them in there, and we'll get them get to them at the end. Uh, so, Tobias, uh, welcome again from the US. Early early morning. Uh, are you ready to kick off? Sure. Yes. Let me uh, turn on my camera. I thought I was third in the queue, but uh, I'm fine with second. So. Well, I guess I am third in the queue here, so let me start the video. And let me share my screen. Okay. okay. I am ready. Uh, well, thank you, Alan. Um, and uh, thank you, Rory and Stuart. That was really uh, interesting. We have some things in common. Uh, and I learned a few things about... Uh, going on in Ireland and, and the trust. Uh, just to give you guys a little bit of background for, for people who don't know me or, or, or my company, uh, I just wanted to sort of give you a brief, and I can't change slides here. There we go. Uh, a little bit of a background on, on TVPX. We've been around since 2002. Uh, for many years, we focused on 1031 exchanges in the U.S., which was a tax strategy that U.S. corporations used to defer taxes. Um, our clients were the Fortune 500, high net worth individuals, lessors, investors, and so forth, um, in business, commercial, and fixed uh, aircraft and um, rotor wing. Uh, and over the years, we did billions of dollars in, in, in tax transactions for our clients. But we were one dimensional and decided in uh, 2014 to diversify and so we started our own owner trust business um, in the US. Uh, we're not an Irish trustee as, uh, as Rory and Stuart were, were, were discussing. Uh, the brain trust for uh, trusts in the US is all based in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And we hired away a few lawyers from different uh, banks, Dave Wall from Wells Fargo, and then Brett King, Mike Hogan, and, and Scott Nielsen, who's a, a marketing guy, came over from Bank of Utah to join our group in 15. Uh, and then, you know, we recognized that we need to provide more value, add more services in-house, and we started a U.S. customs brokerage, an aviation insurance brokerage in 18, uh, which were licensed in 50 states, and we can do international transactions through the carriers that we work with. And then in 19, we started uh, teaming up with DARs uh, around the world to uh, provide uh, standard airworthiness certificates and export certificates of airworthiness um, uh, for our cross-border uh, transaction clients. Um, and our portfolio has grown uh, considerably. We now have 1,400 aircraft in trust globally. Uh, and these markets that you see here are our biggest markets uh, in that order. Um, 
um, so that's really our focus. The, the trust business really does drive everything. Um, and uh, I do want to talk a little bit about um, uh, customs border, customs and border protection issues, uh, importing and registered aircraft and non-registered aircraft and some of the different perspectives between the FAA uh, and U.S. Customs, uh, because there's, there's quite a bit of confusion out there that we try to uh, straighten out. Um, so I'm going to talk about importing aircraft into the U.S. and when entry is required. Uh, and, and entry is just a, making entry is just a fancy way of, of uh, uh, describing importing. Uh, and it's a formal process that has to be followed. Um, uh, here's some examples. Uh, the simple one is when aircraft are purchased overseas and then brought into the U.S. for consumption. When the aircraft is merchandise, uh, you know, aircraft are sort of a funny asset. Most of their lives, they are vehicles transporting people and cargo, as we all know. Uh, but when they are involved in a transaction and a cross-border transaction, uh, they are merchandise and they're no different than a container full of toys or clothing coming in on a container ship or over the border in a truck. Uh, there's a formal process for entering the merchandise into the uh, U.S. Customs Territory. Another example of when you need to bring an aircraft into the import an aircraft is when they're brought in for a pre-buy inspection. Um, and uh, uh, there's a trap here that people fall into. They wait for the transaction to happen uh, before they make entry. And then, of course, when they close, um, they, they uh, realize that somebody has to make entry and that entry might be late. Uh, customs could find them for negligence for being late and really the best practice is to do the entry before you go to the pre-buy uh, and sometimes we have to solve that problem a lot of people will just fly the airplane out and then back and make entry and that's an expensive way to um, uh, to import an aircraft and I think the biggest reason this happens is because the buyer uh, could potentially reject the airplane. And so they don't want to import it, whether they realize they have to or not, until they know have a deal. They know they have a deal, and that, that, that creates this problem. And there's also the question of who's going to be the importer of record or the IOR. Another example of when you need to bring an aircraft and import it into the U.S., and this is probably apropos for this group, is when an aircraft comes in for repair and alteration. Uh, there are some differing opinions on this, uh, but if you look at the regs and you take a conservative position as I do, uh, there's no question in my mind there are specific tariff codes uh, for aircraft coming in for repair and alteration and maintenance. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's a formal process, again, like uh, uh, importing an aircraft that's part of a transaction. In this case, it's not part of a transaction, um, but they do... the. The government wants to know what's coming in for repair and alteration, and they also want to know the value of the parts and labor that are purchased in the U.S. before the aircraft is exported, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, another example is when you bring an aircraft in for a trade show. This is mostly business aircraft uh, that come in to be sold, um, and lease returns, uh, and that's probably uh, appropriate here for commercial aircraft. Uh, you know, when an aircraft has been leased overseas for many years uh, and it comes back in uh, to be returned to the lessor, it is merchandise. It's going to be remarketed for lease, for sale, uh, and should be imported um, when it, you know, when it comes back into the customs territory um, of the United States. Where the aircraft is registered is relevant. Um, entry is required for um non and registered and and registered aircraft that are coming in as part of a transaction, whether it's a purchase and sale or maintenance. Um, the perception that the and registered aircraft don't have to be imported is incorrect. Uh, this is just a, 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 a big misnomer in, in the industry. Uh, and obviously it, it makes sense. They say, well, it's US owned. Why do we have to import it? Um, but it could be U.S. owned and overseas for many years. It was likely exported. Um, it could have been uh, placed in trust, uh, you know, somewhere overseas uh, at some point in the past and, and registered. Uh, 
Um, and when it comes back in, the, 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 um, the government not only wants those trade statistics, but they want their pound of flesh. They want their duties and taxes and fees. Um, there's no duties and taxes on aircraft, but there are fees. Um, there, well, I shouldn't say there's no duties and taxes on aircraft. There are duties and taxes on brand new Airbus aircraft coming into the US. Uh, all other aircraft, there's just uh, merchandise processing fees that have to be paid upon the import. Um, but if it was true that uh, you didn't have to uh, import an unregistered aircraft, you'd have a glaring trade compliance loophole. Um, you know, you could take an aircraft registered anywhere in the world, Ireland, Singapore, um, you could take it to an MRO, you could uh, have it reconfigured to conform to the original FAA type certificate data sheet, uh, you could put it in trust, you could have a DAR issue the standard airworthiness certificate, and then bring it to the U.S. and not have to import it. And, and that's a loophole I don't think that the um, uh, U.S. government and uh, Customs and Border Protection would be too uh, keen to accept. Um, so the point I want to make here uh, that a lot of people don't seem to grasp is that trade compliance versus changing rest registries are very different processes that are confused as the same. Um, there's a big difference between a customs import and an export and an FAA import and an export. And the terms are used synonymously. And that's where the confusion is. Um, the, you know, we have something called an export certificate of airworthiness. And I can't tell you how many times we've been involved in a transaction. We put an aircraft in trust in the US. We know it's going to Brazil or Australia or wherever. And we ask them, you know, are you all set with your uh, export filing? And the answer we'll get back is, well, yeah, we're all set. We have the DAR just issued the export CFA, and uh, um, and and we're, and we're in good shape. Um, and we have to explain to them that the export that they're referring to is very different than the export we're talking about, which is the um, the automated export system filing. You know, a CFA export CFA is issued by a DAR, and the export uh, of the aircraft requires a filing in a system, and it's an electronic system that we have access to through our customs brokerage in the automated export system. And it's a formal uh, uh, process. Um, obviously, the export CFA is issued in anticipation of a change in the registration at some point in the future. So we do these export trusts where the aircraft goes into trust, uh, it's, it's, it's unregistered, uh, and then the foreign uh, client has the ability to operate the aircraft because they're not a U.S. citizen. They bring the aircraft home, they deregister, and they re-register. And that's the reason for the export CFA. But the government, the U.S. government, wants to know the value of the merchandise that was purchased in the U.S. Uh, and who took it out. Uh, versus importing, uh, which is a, a formal entry. And of course, people use the term uh, you know, uh, importing onto the FAA registry, um, you know, importing aircraft for U.S. customs purposes is also a formal process which involves um, merchandise aircraft, so all aircraft <laughs> valued over $2,500, um, and you'll have the delivery of documents and, and information to customs, you'll have a customs bond, and you'll have the payment of duties and taxes uh, and fees versus a, a uh, the import onto the registry uh, where a standard C of A is issued by DAR after the aircraft is registered with the FAA. There are other types of customs entries. Uh, you've got TIB, which is a temporary import, U.S. goods returned, foreign goods returned. Uh, these are duty-free, so you, so you save those merchandise processing fees. Um, doesn't exempt you from making the entry and getting a bond, uh, but you do save a little bit of money uh, when you take advantage of those different types of entities. But the processes are, are very different. As it relates to uh, repair and alteration, um, as I, you know, Section 329 uh, of the Code of Federal Regulations uh, refers to, um, you know, when you need to export. Uh, and import. Um, if you're bringing an aircraft in, you've got to import the aircraft for repair and alteration, and there are specific tariff codes uh, for that type of uh, import. Um, and then once the work is done, 
they want a reporting on the way out of the value and the parts and labor over $2,500. And, you know, for an aircraft, as soon as you open the door, um, you're going to spend $2,500. Um, and this is not well understood, I, I, I don't think. Um, in certain in certain uh, circles um, importing aircraft uh, someone must act as the importer of record uh, anyone with a financial interest in the transaction can can act as the importer it can be the owner it can be the seller it can be the seller and the owner it could be the same uh, the buyer uh, customs broker lessor lessee like I said anyone with a financial interest in the transaction um, uh, filings are made in the automated commercial environment. This is similar to the automated export system for uh, for, for exporting. Uh, the importer gives power of attorney to the to the customs broker to rep represent them before U.S. Customs. There's a number of documents that are required. You've got the customs form uh, 3461, which is the entry, the 7501, which is the entry summary. Uh, a lot of those, uh, a lot of the information on both of these forms is the same that it's redundant but then there's there's some differences as well uh, the custom form 301 is your customs bond uh, there you know they want information who's the importer who's the consignee they want the classification of the aircraft all aircraft all merchandise for that matter are, are, are classified in the harmonized tariff schedule um, which is the sort of encyclopedia of merchandise um, and aircraft are classified in Chapter 88 uh, of that uh, of the schedule. Of course, they want to know the type of entry, the port of entry. Uh, each, every port of entry has a firm's code, which specifically identifies where that aircraft is coming. Uh, date of arrival, uh, they want to know the value of the aircraft, uh, the description of the property, uh, the unladen weight kilograms, manufacturer's ID, et cetera. Um, so again, this is a formal process. There's additional documentation. Uh, every port of entry is a little bit different. So you've got to check in advance. If it's coming into Bangor, Maine, they're looking for one set of things. If it's coming into Alaska, they might you know, want a few other things that are slightly different. I'm not sure what the reason is for the differences, but we, we, we check in advance when we're bringing an aircraft in and we make sure that we're providing the port of entry with everything that they're looking for. Record keeping is very important uh, as, as it relates to uh, importing. All importers, exporters, uh, brokers have to keep their records for five years. Customs does audit transactions um, and they can find if your uh, records are not uh, in order. Um, uh, we worry about three levels of fines uh, and penalties from simple negligence to fraud. Uh, simple negligence might be something like um, misclassification, uh, fraud would be misrepresentation of value, something like that. Gross negligence is somewhere in between. Uh, I guess it's a little bit more subjective. Um, the scary part here is that penalties for the simple negligence start at 20% of the value of the merchandise. So for an aircraft, that can be a lot of money. Uh, and it just points to the need to be very careful, uh, very diligent, um, uh, do things accurately, be transparent uh, with, with U.S. Customs. Um, I don't know if they've ever fined anyone at 20%, uh, but by the letter of the law, they can. Uh, I've seen EAPIS violations as high as $50,000 for having someone on the EAPIS manifest that was not listed. Uh, and of course, you can fight and mitigate, but it's time and effort and uh, legal expense that nobody wants or needs. Um, so here's a couple of examples of violations. Failure to make the entry, obviously. Uh, Record-keeping violations we talked about. Uh, misrepresentation of value would be a big problem. Um, there's no point uh, to even attempt to, uh, you know, obviously it's it, it's an area where if people try to misrepresent the value of what they're importing, they can save money on, on duties and taxes and fees. But with an aircraft, it's it's completely um, uh, um, irrelevant because uh, the, the, the duties, the fees are capped actually at, at $519. So it's pointless to even try to uh, misrepresent value. I think people are just uncomfortable 
disclosing the value of their aircraft or the sale agreement price to the government. Uh, but it's, 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 it's not disclosed anywhere. It's not public information. Uh, it's nothing to be concerned about. People are concerned about, well, is this going to, you know, trigger a tax or something? And it's not. Um, uh, it, but you have to be completely transparent on the value of aircraft that you're bringing into the U.S. Failure to pay the duty. I mean, if you don't pay the, the 519 and 76 cents, uh, they'll just liquidate the bond. Uh, that's what it's there for. And unfortunately, they don't, they don't call the surety and say, you know, we're owed $519 and 76 cents. Uh, they liquidate the whole bond. Uh, the minimum bond amount is 50,000. That's usually what we see for, um, uh, for importing aircraft. Um, and, and then you've got an insurance company who's going to be after you for their $50,000 plus potentially additional fines and penalties on top of that for failure to pay. Uh, and then failure to use reasonable care, provide accurate information. Obviously the government wants, the U.S. government wants people to be completely um, transparent. Exporting aircraft, it's just as important to properly export and report the electronic export information in the automated export system. It generates an ITN number uh, prior to the departure. There's no bond like there is with an import. It's purely statistical. Um, Someone's got to be the exporter of record, or the, what we call the U.S. principal party in interest. Uh, they should have a U.S. Uh, address and a tax ID. This creates some complication for foreign buyers, non-U.S. citizens who do not have permanent U.S. address and tax ID. Uh, there are a number of solutions uh, when this is, you know, these conditions are not met. Um, you can use a trustee to export as we do for our clients. Uh, you can have someone who's physically in the U.S. that's employed by the foreign company to act as the exporter and use their passport number. Um, there's a couple of different alternatives. If they had an employee in the country at the time that the aircraft was paid for, they can be the exporter. Um, exports are subject to the EAR, the Export Administration Regulations. It's a tremendous volume of uh, regs. Um, the big takeaway is be careful who you're doing business with, <clears throat> careful vetting of uh, everyone uh, involved in a transaction, um, and doing background checks and so forth, which we do. Um, and some exports require licenses. This is unusual, but it does happen from time to time when an aircraft or helicopter has got some sensitive military or defense technology on board that's going to require an ITAR license. ITAR is International Traffic and Arms Regulations. Um, and uh, you've got to slow things down and get a license because it would be fairly serious if you have something on board like that and you don't have a license. Um, and that's all I have. That's uh, um, great, uh, Tobias. Thanks for that. Uh, it's a good overview of, of the difference between FAA import and exports and, and the customs regulations that are there. <clears throat> Just a, there's one question I see on the on the chat there from Brian Ski, and you know, the, uh, for an aircraft uh, like an HC20737 Arab body that's been imported uh, for maintenance visit uh, on the foreign registry of uh, what what are the rough order of magnitude costs for for that import? Is it just the uh, the bond? Um, I just, I mean, is the bond kind of set at 50k for narrow body or is it more depending if it's wide body or narrow body? What's your views on the, on the rough order of magnitude costs for uh, that type of import? Sure. So, so to import an aircraft, um, the merchandise processing fee is $519.76 as I mentioned. Uh, the bond, um, the, the premium for a $50,000 bond is only $200 US. Um, you know, we're a little different uh, than some other customs brokers. We don't mark up the bond. I think uh, brokers do that because they feel like they'll have an importer that uh, renews that bond every year and they get a little bit of an annuity payment. Uh, I don't like that model. We're just sort of transparent, pass that through, and then we charge a fee uh, for the import. It's, you know, can range anywhere from 3000 to 4000 U.S., uh, unless I'm asked to be the exporter where I'm taking on more risk than, I'm sorry, the importer uh, or the exporter, but I'm taking on more risk uh, and, uh, and uh, we charge a little bit more, but, uh, but that's about, you know, that's about right for your typical so import. You're saying rough order of magnitude cost is less than five grand? Yep. All right.
that's a safe that's a safe um nice um any other questions out there um I take it, sorry, just to go back to that's a duty-free uh, uh, type of import for, for repair in the U.S., is that right? Uh, it would be uh, duty-free. Um, you could do it as a goods return to even save the 51976. There's different thinking on that, uh, especially with, with, with large aircraft. So, but, the, you know, the, the most you're going to pay to the U.S. government is the 51976. Right. Uh, you do it as a, a full formal consumption entry versus uh, goods returned or a TIB. Uh, we look at every situation a little bit differently and say, what's the most appropriate type of entry for this transaction? And then we let the client decide what they want to do. And uh, just like, there's another question there from Anis at ABL Aviation. What's the lead time to proceed on the whole process for maintenance or for sale purchase? Oh, you know, uh, if you wanted to import an airplane tomorrow, I could do it. It wouldn't be fun for anybody. Um, it'd be a little bit of a fire drill, um, but uh, I think, you know, what I tell people is a week to two weeks is generally comfortable to give everybody time to get all the documents in place, to get the bond in place. Um, uh, it's generally uh, a nice, comfortable uh, time frame. You know, we do have the fire drills. We also have people who prepare months in advance. So, uh, but, it, you know, if it's something that comes up, pretty quickly. A couple of weeks is uh, about right. Good stuff. Any other questions out there for um, Tobias? Just give it a second. You can you can speak or write or... Um, okay. Uh, well, uh, again, Tobias, thanks for that. Uh, thanks to Stuart and Rory for their input on GATS. Um, we're just at uh, 11.56, just under the hour, which is good. And um, next week, I'm going to return uh, to more technical matters. Uh, we had a request from one of the uh, participants to look at aging aircraft uh, safety rules, an overview of aging aircraft uh, uh, maintenance costs uh, for wide body and narrow body. So um, that's what we hope to present to you next week. And on that note, uh, we close the Zoom call for today. And thanks again, everybody, for joining. And we'll see you again soon. Good afternoon and good morning. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. Bye -bye. Thanks all. Bye-bye.